0: Well, good morning again, again, all those things. And this is a uh, a new day. It is the first Sunday in Lent. And so that is just crazy, right? It feels like we just got done with Christmas, Uh, Advent. In fact, my family and I went down to uh, Florida this uh, past week or so to kind of have Christmas part two. Because if you were like me, you got COVID during Christmas and we were uh, quarantined and didn't get a chance to be around folks uh, while we were down there last time. And so we ran down there again and tried to have kids have some grandparent time. And in so doing, while I wasn't looking, it's Lent, right? All of a sudden, here we are, and we're on the march to Easter, and, uh, and a lot of exciting things going on with that. This, uh, this series that we are stepping into, just as he said, promises from the upper, upper room, really and truly, for me, it bridges the gap of what we learned in Advent here as a church. If you remember in Advent, we really kind of elevated the, the phrase, the thrill of hope. What brings us the, the, the thrill of hope in God sending his son to this world as a babe to, to save and redeem us all? And now in Lent, I wish to turn that and we are going to look at where we find the assurance of our hope. How can we stand firmly on our faith, on our hope in Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, that he is doing what he said he is going to do, and that he's going to do what he will do. Where do we find our assurance? How do we can stand firm? Because the world that is around us, as you know and very well are aware, is crazy sauce, right? I mean, just... Lots of stuff that are going on. Who could imagine that in this day and age we would be watching what we're watching that's going on over there in Europe. But it's not a surprise to the Lord whatsoever that this stuff is going on. So how do we have assurance in the hope that Jesus Christ is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, that the tomb was in fact empty and that we have life, eternal life in him. And so we're going to go to the upper room and look at what he said and look at those promises. Now, all through the New Testament, there's lots of promises that all just kind of are all throughout there. We're only picking out like seven of of them that are there. Uh, A tip for you all is that when you go through scriptures in the New Testament and you see Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you or or something along those lines, uh, that's, you know, you can kind of take that to the bank is what he's going to say there. So we're going to look at seven in the upper room and see what Jesus is saying and how they're going to be fulfilled in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord on Easter Sunday. So I'm excited. You're all excited? Let me see excited faces. There we are. Very good. Wonderful. So when you were kids, quick question. When you were a kid, and maybe some of you are kids and still kids at heart right now. When you were a, a child, did you ever engage in a conversation with a sibling, a friend, Somebody along those lines and either maybe shared a juicy secret or maybe you and your brother or sister broke the family vase of some sort that, that mom got from great-great-grandma that is ugly as all get out, but you broke it and you're in big trouble and you try to piece that together, try to hide the evidence, and you look at your sibling or your friend and you say, don't tell anybody, and then you hit stick out your pinky, have you ever done that before, and you do what? You have a pinky swear or a pinky promise, right? Everyone's familiar with a pinky promise, right? When you make a pinky promise, that is, that is, that is very, very serious. And if you break that pinky promise, all of the calamity and death upon you is going to happen because you broke such a promise. At least that's what I grew up with. I had older cousins who were very serious. And then they would, you know, that was the fear. Don't break a pinky promise. There's a movie, again, last time that I was up here, we watched Disney Plus and, and things like that. That's our life right now. And there is a movie called Despicable Me. Anyone seen Despicable Me? And uh, Despicable Me, it's just a fun, fun movie, and it's about a villain who turns good, and he adopts three little girls, and they, um, they warm his heart. And he, there's a scene where he's at a dance recital, and they're dancing, doing Swan Lake, and all sorts of stuff. And the little, sweet little girl, Agnes, comes up to, to the main character's name's Gru and says to him, here's the ticket to the dance recital on Saturday. And she's still dancing and she looks at him and he's holding all of their girl stuff, just not amused. And she looks at him and she goes, you are going to come, right? He goes, yes, yes, I'll be there. And she goes, pinky promise? And he's like, yes, I promise with my pinky kind of thing. And, and, And you know that he doesn't really mean it. But you fast forward to the end of the movie and the dance recital is happening and he's not there. He's doing something else. He's breaking the pinky promise. And this poor little Agnes is, is trying to hold the recital up. Don't, don't start. He's going to be here. Why? Because he pinky promised. She put all of her hope in that pinky promise that this is, this is what's going to happen. God has made pinky promises to us all through Scripture. And when you see that this happens, unlike the movie with Gru and, and he may or may not follow through, With the Lord, we know his faithfulness. When he makes a pinky promise to us, he's going to do what he said he is going to do. May not be in our time. It may not even be in our lifetime as we see in the Old Old Testament. There's a lot of times where God makes promises with folks and says, but you're not going to see it. It may not be in our time, but he is going to follow through with what he is going to follow through on. And in, uh, in, in our, our scripture, that pinky promise is called, it's a fancy word, it's called covenant. Say the word, covenant. 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 Covenant is really God's pinky swear to us. It's something that we can take to the bank even when the world is falling around, uh, 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 around us, where we think there, is, there possibly is no God because of all the stuff that is going on. I was reminded of a passage in in scripture. I'm just going to put it up here. You don't have to turn to it. It's in Lamentations. And and it says this, this idea of how can we have this assurance in the Lord. All through Lamentations, he's he's lamenting. He's, he's, He's struggling. And then he says this, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. In the midst of everything going on. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Stop there. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never stops. It is always going. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah just nails this on the head. When everything is just going to H in a handbasket. And it just looks like this is just bleak. Call to mind the steadfast love of the Lord which never ceases. And know that that is a pinky promise you can take to the bank that he will not leave us in that that calamity or that calamity that is going around will not be the end of us. And so God makes these pinky promises all through scripture. I'm gonna take us a little bit into the Old Testament, have a little bit of Old Testament theology one-on-one and then we're gonna go to the upper room. And so to understand how these pinky promises from God work, this covenant from God to us works, we're gonna go to the book of Genesis. So if you wanna open up to Genesis real quick, Genesis 15, 8 through 21. This may be a review for you all, so bear with me. I'm going to try to move through it very, very, very quickly. But you've got to understand this, because a cool thing is about to happen when we get up to the upper room. We're going to see this great big connect the dot kind of thing happen here. It's going to be awesome. So here we are in Genesis with a guy named Abraham. Abraham's a very, very big, big deal with our faith, with the Israelite faith, the father of the Jews, that kind of thing. God chooses Abraham out of the midst of people. He gives him something to do. He tells him to get up and move. And Abraham does it. He obeys. And because Abraham obeys God, God begins to kind of credit this to him as righteousness. As he's he's justified. He's good. He's following in my ways. And because he does that, God begins to kind of establish a pinky swear, a pinky promise, a covenant with him. Abraham's very, very old. We all know this. If you don't know this, he's old. Very, very old. And God says to him, Hey, guess what? Got real something that's going to blow your mind. You and your wife, who is also old, in their their 80s, 90s, you guys are going to have a child, and this child will, will then spring forth multitudes of people, numerous as the stars, just lots and lots of folks, in your name. Great, right? And so Abraham's like, Um, I don't even know if they had biology class back then, but I think he pretty much knew. I'm old, wife's old, this ain't happening, right? And she is kind of barren. She's not had a child. We know that this isn't going to happen. What else you got, God? And so there's just this interaction. That's all before Genesis 15, this back and forth. Abraham kind of doubting God and listening to God, and God doubles down with him. And then we get to Genesis 15. And what happens here? In Genesis 15, Abraham, God kind of reiterates to Abraham what his covenant is with him, what his promise is with him. And Abraham continues to look at him and says, how can I know this to be true? How can I know for sure that you are going to give me a son because we're old? How can I know for sure you're going to bring us to a place because I, and numerous of the stars, my, my, my descendants, how can this happen? And then in verse 8 in chapter 15, page, page 12, says this. But he said, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? There's a promise of land. And real quick, with the covenants in, in the Old Testament, what you need to understand about covenants in the Old Testament is that it follows a structure In the covenants in the Old Testament, there is typically a lord and a vassal, a primary and a secondary. And typically in those agreements, the secondary person, the person in second position, in lower position, needs something from the person in first position, the lord. Needs typically a place, needs identity, they need to be a people, they need provisions, they need protection. All the peace. Place, provision, protection, and a people. And usually there's an agreement there that the Lord will say, Okay, I'll give you all these things. You can be in my land. You can have all that stuff. You have to follow these conditions. And so the second looks at those conditions and agrees to them. And then when they agree to them, they do a bit of a ceremony. In which they take animal flesh and they break it. And they spill the blood. And then the second person in second position walks through the animal pieces as a sign to the primary person that if I break these conditions, you have every right to do to me that has happened to these animals. It's called a self-cursing oath, a maledictory oath. The second says to the first you may do to me whatever has happened to this if I fail to uphold my end of the bargain and follow your conditions, okay? So here we are back in Genesis chapter eight. Abraham's saying to God, how do I know this to be true? How do I know you're gonna give me a land? How do I know you're gonna give me a people? How do I know you're gonna give me protection and all those things? And in verse nine, he said to him, God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, Smorgasbord board of animals here, right? And I'm, and I'm sure there's significance in here, but we only have, you know, 30 minutes. But anyway, so, so now verse 10. He brought them, Abraham brought all these, he cut them in half, he laid them on each side, and he did not cut the birds uh, in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun is going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to him, No for certain. Take this to the bank. That your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Stop for a second. What that means, that word sojourners. God says to Abraham, your people, your descendants that I have promised you that are going to have a land, they're going to have protection and provision, they're going to be sojourners in another land. What does that mean? It means they lost it. They lost that land. They lost that protection somehow, some way. They failed. They did not uphold their end of the bargain and they lost those things. He says, know this for certain, Abraham. They will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation. God doubles down. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. In other words, this is a great promise for you, Abraham, but you're not going to see it. And you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not, not, not complete. Now, verse 17, here it is. When the sun goes down, it is dark. And behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passes through those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a pinky swear a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, and so on and so forth. God makes an everlasting covenant with Abraham. If you go on to other places in Genesis, God actually says that. I make an everlasting covenant with you. A covenant's going to last forever. And he adds a little bit more conditions on here and there. We all know that circumcision comes into play. That's a condition to the covenant, etc. And what happens is we establish this Abrahamic override in the Old Testament. That even though the Jews may mess up and not hold to the conditions of God's pinky swear promise with them. There's this override that happens because we always have this remnant, this preservation of people that God begins to start working through to try to build them up all the way until we get to Jesus. It's very, very fascinating. But that's not the most fascinating thing here. The most fascinating thing here is that dream who walks through the broken pieces, the smoking pot fiery torch that is a symbol of God himself. God himself says to Abraham, this is not on your shoulders. You will, your people will mess this up. So instead of you, the second, taking the self-cursing oath that you get broken and die like these animal pieces, God says, I'm going to take the self-cursing oath. I will take the punishment for you breaking these conditions. And may my body be broken and blood spilt like these animal pieces because of your all's incapability of sticking to my promise. Crazy. When I first saw that, I was a youth minister in Fleming Island, Florida. When I first saw that, my mind was blown. I dropped the Bible. I looked at that and I'm like, this is Jesus in Genesis. Does everyone know this? People need to know this. Like, Genesis, written thousands of years before Jesus even comes on the scene, and here it is. God is saying to Abraham, this is how I'm going to save you. It's going to be me that saves you, not you. You're great. Your faith is wonderful, but you guys are incapable of holding on to this this promise. So it's going to be me. It's going to be on my shoulders. I'm going to help you through this. He basically says to Abraham and to us, I pinky promise, I got you covered. And that is our point for today. I got you covered. God says, I got you covered. Don't worry. You are with me. You're mine. Your sins, they're covered. What does this mean for the upper room? You're all sitting here thinking, thanks for taking me to seminary. Get on with it, right? So we go to the upper room, to where Jesus is at. And the first thing that we're gonna look at here in the upper room is in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the the um, I can't the, the synonym gospels, but if you look at that, they they talk about the Lord's Supper. The Gospel of John opens up with the feet washing, but we're gonna look at the Lord's Supper today, obviously, because we're gonna take communion. So Jesus gets up there in the upper room, and it's the Passover feast. It is the time of Passover, which we're going to look at in just a second. And he gathers his disciples around, and he has this this Passover dinner with them. But he changes and flips everything on its head. He is going to fulfill in this Lord's Supper, and what he's going to demonstrate to them, he is going to fulfill everything that we just talked about with Abraham. Abraham. He is going to fulfill the Abrahamic override. The Abrahamic override helps the Jews uh, um, in in times of protection that that their people will not be decimated but now in Jesus he opens the doors to Jew and Gentile alike who place a faith in him and now the salvation is going to come not so much from a physical death but a spiritual one and what he is going to do with this Passover feast, this bread and this cup. Open up to Matthew 26. You've heard this before if you've ever come to church on the first Sunday of the month. Matthew 26, verse 26 says this. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is happening here? How does Jesus have us covered? So this is the Passover feast. If you're familiar with the Passover feast, there was a time in the Israelites' history where they were sojourners in a land, just as he said to Abraham. They were sojourners in a the land. They were in Egypt. They were enslaved. And then God raises up Moses, and things start happening, right? And he says to Moses, you're going to lead your people out of Egypt. And Moses is like, I don't know how it's going to work. And God sends plagues upon Egypt. And on the 10th plague, he says to Moses, to the Israelites, this is what you need to do. It's in Exodus 12, I'm going to summarize here. This is what you need to do. You need to go and get yourself an unblemished lamb, a lamb that has no, nothing wrong with it. And then at a certain time, you are going to then, each household is going to kill and sacrifice that lamb. You're going to take the blood from that lamb and you're going to put it on your door posts because at a certain time, I'm going to come through, the angel of destruction is going to come through this land, and we're going to take every firstborn child and every firstborn beast. The firstborn, everything is going to be taken. Now you may think that's kind of harsh, but you've got to understand here, it's God is not this angry God in the Old Testament. You have to understand that sin and wickedness always gets punished. Sin and wickedness always sees death. And this is what God is doing in Egypt. He's proving a point to them. He is saying, I am the one true God, and I can take this from you all. And He does that. But the Jewish people who have put the blood on their posts, their doorposts, what happens? God passes over those houses. And their firstborn, there's no dead people in that house that night. And when He does this, the Pharaoh and all of Egypt, there's a great cry in the land, it says in Exodus. And Pharaoh says to the Israelites, get out. Go. Take whatever it is that you need to go. I want you to leave. Get out of this land. They're scared. They're afraid. And so what happens is, is that God instructs them from henceforth now after this. You are going to hold this as a festival, this Passover festival. And every year, you are going to have unleavened bread. You are going to have um, bitter herbs. You're going to do this and observe the fact that I saved you. I spared you from death. Do that every year. And when generations come and they ask their parents, why are we doing this? The Lord says in Exodus, you tell them why you did this. It's because I saved you from this death. And then they bow down and they worship the Lord. Now Jesus is a good Jew. Here we are back in the upper room. It's the time of Passover. He tells his disciples, go get a place and prepare this feast. But now what happens? He changes The Passover feast. He changes the focus, and in so doing, is going to fulfill all the pinky swear promises of the Old Testament and establish a new one, a lasting one for all of us. How? When he gathers them at the table, he holds up the bread. Now, we have bread that has leaven in it, we're not good Jews. (laughs) So that's, <laughs> but you could, some people would do, actually your little take-home communion ones probably doesn't have leaven in it, so you can, you can do that. But he takes the bread of the Passover feast, and instead of just holding it up as being like, this is symbolic of how God provided for our, our physical safety, he turns it on its end and says, no, my friends, this bread in which you are eating, that you are going to eat, this is My body. He puts himself into the position of the sacrificial lamb of Passover. This bread is my body. You take and you eat of it. And then he takes the cup. There are four cups of the Passover feast. The cup that he takes here is the third cup. It's the cup of redemption. And in it there's wine and they're supposed to drink all the wine. But he pours out the wine and he says, no, this is different now. This wine now is my blood. And it is poured out and is shed for you as a sign of the covenant, it says. Don't miss what he's doing. Jesus now is stepping into the position of the fiery smoky pot. And he says, it's my blood that is going to be spilled for what? The forgiveness of your all sin. For your incapability of keeping to my father's commands. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to take on that punishment for you. Why? So that you're covered. So that you're covered. It's like going to a, a, a fun party, this club. If anyone's ever been to a club that has a cover charge, you wait in line and you get up there, you get up there and it's a popular club. Everyone wants to be in it. Everyone wants to be in that party. And you're in line and you get up to the velvet ropes and you get there and there's this big guy and he looks at you and he says, cover charge or you're not worthy to come in. You want something for you to get into the party. And you open up your pockets and all you got is lint. You got nothing. But I want to be in that party. That party looks fun. I want to be there. And just then, the host of the party comes out. Life of the party, laughing. And he sees what's going on. And he sees that you just, you just desire and really want to be in there. But you have no way to pay to get in. And he looks at the bouncer and he says, don't worry. I got you covered. And you're allowed to go in. No matter what you look like, no matter how little money you have, No matter how unworthy you think you are, you're allowed to come in. Jesus ends that statement, that that time at the Lord's Supper. He says, I promise you this. I won't drink from this again until you're with me. Until the new kingdom comes. I will wait to have this celebration, this huge party, until you're here. I've got you covered for now. You'll, You'll experience a physical death But because of this covering, because of this blood that has been shed, you're good and you will be with me and you will not experience a spiritual death because of what I am going to do. This I pinky swear to you. I got you covered. He satisfies the old. He satisfies the transgressions against the commandments of everybody and establishes a new that says through me, you're in. Isn't that crazy? This may be reviewed to you. This may be old news. But for those that this is good news, this is a new news, this is where we have our assurance of hope. Because if we were on our own, without the Lord doing this, we would surely never get into the party. Our sin and our wickedness would always count us out. Paul in Romans 7 says this. Look real quick. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God and in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, what a wretched man that I am! Who can deliver me from this body of death? There's no hope in that, right? Right? There's just constant internal struggle. struggle. But then look at what he says next. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Paul gets it. He says, Jesus got you covered. On your own, no, you can't get into the party. On your own, you can't be a cool Christ kid. On your own, you're spotty. You've got peanut butter stains, if you remember from a sermon ago. You've got stains all over your shirt you can't come in. You can't be a cool Christ kid on your own. But through Christ, who takes on that self-curse, whose blood is shed for the forgiveness of all of our sins, through faith in him, he's got us covered and you can join the party. And that's where that first assurance of hope. I think we got to understand this. All the other promises are going to flow out of this. we got to get it and understand why, why we can take Jesus' promises to the bank is because what we know that he did on the cross and that he gives us this, this, this rite, this ritual of communion for us to continue to do it each and every time. And Paul teaches us that each and every time that we do this, We proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. We are reminded of everything that Jesus has done for us. And so when you take communion, be strengthened by that. When you take communion, be empowered by that. When you take communion, be convicted of where you fall short, but have hope in the fact that he has got you covered.